Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 6. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, Paul or Will would like to grab those. And um, we will be praying for you in this coming week. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you are here. Romans 6, I want to set our sights on verses 19 through 22 this morning. Slaves of God, sounds appealing, doesn't it? I pray when we're done today that you'll see that as, wow, this is really an important focus in the Christian life. Speaking of the Christian life, are you growing as a Christian? Has there been a new direction set in your life since you believed in Him? Is your walk with the Lord bearing spiritual fruit? Are you resembling more and more the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ? He's honest. I mean, (laughs) do you even concern yourselves with these questions? We should. You can't dive into Romans and not think about these questions, especially in chapter 6. We have been in a study of Romans for some time. Chapters 1 through 5 move us from our ruin because of sin to a new standing with God by faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 6 has shifted gears and shows us why our justification by faith always brings sanctification. True justification being declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven by faith in the righteous one, Jesus Christ, necessarily leads to a working out of that saving faith relationship and a life surrendered to him with growth in Christ. Romans 6 really is a a life-changing chapter because it helps us as believers to see that our faith that alone justifies us is never separated from the pursuit of an obedient, holy life. It also shows us that God is at work in us and that He supplies the power by His grace to do what we could never do on our own. We participate in our sanctification. We don't participate in our justification. That's a work of God alone. But we participate in our sanctification by which we pursue obedience, by which we seek to read the Bible in such a way that it's commanding me to do this and this is how I need to live. And so as regenerate believers made alive in the Spirit, born again by the Spirit of God, we participate in our sanctification But our arrival safely home is not through our self-determining efforts. It is by the grace of God. It is grace that leads us home. And so Romans 6 helps us to think in this way with regard to our battle with sin. Um, And when we think about sin, it really is coming back to, as a believer, I choose not to let sin reign in my body because God is at work in me and will not let me let sin reign in my body. This is what Paul has been communicating in Romans chapter 6. I choose not to let sin reign in my body because God is at work in me and will not let sin reign in my body because I'm a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, in this idea of salvation where we're cooperating with God to pursue a holy life, what does that look like? 
Philippians 2, would you turn there with me? It is a cross-reference I think I've referred you to on a number of occasions, but keeping your finger in Romans 6, we'll be back in just a minute, but in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, this is how Paul describes Romans 6 to the Philippians in another context. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, look at this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So he's talking to the believers, a church that he loved and who loved him. As you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, even though I'm gone from you, I'm wanting you to obey and follow the Lord with a whole heart. And then he says, work out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? That's the Christian life. How do I work out this obedience by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me? This is not speaking about working for your salvation, working it out in what? What obedience looks like in any given decision, in any given moment as I live day by day uh, for the Lord. Work it out with fear and trembling. Why? Because, well, this isn't something I treat cavalierly. It's not something I, my salvation is not something, well, you know, whatever will be, will be. That's not the picture at all. I'm working it out. What does obedience look like here? What does obedience look like in my marriage? What does it look like with my coworkers? What does it look like among my children? I'm working it out. How? Well, I'm not making it up as I go. I'm I'm aligning myself with the scriptures, which is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path to say, this is God's will speaking to the details of my life, walking with Christ in the details of life. He continues on, and here's the balance I'm wanting you to see. Work out your salvation. That's your, your, your participation, my participation, in salvation. Work it out with fear and trembling. But notice the back half in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see that dynamic there? It is God in us. That is his grace confining us, molding us into his image. And maybe right now, and I just kind of think of reactions to the whole message of Romans. Uh, Maybe I I can hear this maybe in the mind of some, wait a minute, this is way too serious. This is, um, man, this this is taking a lot of thought. This sounds like a a consuming undertaking. Uh, I, I thought to be a Christian meant that Christ was there whenever I needed him, but I could go on my merry way and do what I wanted to do and have the life I wanted to live. And that's not what this is talking about here. Working out with fear and trembling, I'm not, that's, that's pretty serious. Let me just respond to that thought in this way lovingly. Nothing reveals that you have been given a false gospel more than that mindset. I don't know who told you that, but they lied to you. For to follow Jesus Christ, you embrace that you are not your own, that you've been bought with a price, that you're to glorify God with your bodies, with your life, with your all. And we gather every week to remind ourselves of that truth, 
that we would be sanctified and conformed into the image of Jesus. It has often been said that we work at our play and play at our work. Today, the confusion has deepened. We worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. And living the Christian life is to be an ongoing act of worship as we present ourselves to God. Being a Christian requires a serious, all-consuming pursuit of the living God. Why would you think that you would be going to heaven if you're not the least bit interested in that? I mean, really. You know he's the showcase there. He's the centerpiece there. You know, in heaven, the glimpses that we have in Revelation 4 and 5, they're, they're, they're singing his praises. And every time we gather, and the way we live should be a prelude to that one day. But you know what I was noticing just by way of introduction to this study today, and I want to present it to you again, I did some weeks ago, but this idea of order salvation, how scripture presents salvation in many different uh, segments, uh, not that they're, it's to be viewed compartmentally as such, but I offer it to you, these are the ways that God has spoken in his word about our salvation. It starts with this whole doctrine of election, which is in, all of these are in Romans, by the way. God's choice of a people to be saved. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Romans 8, 29 through 30, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Followed by the gospel call that the message of the Bible is that God has sent good news here to this earth. And what is that good news? That God would send his son to redeem us from our sins. And so that came into our lives through the preaching of the gospel. Maybe you heard it through your mother. Maybe you heard it from your father. Maybe you heard it at vacation Bible school. Maybe you heard it one time when you were in church. Maybe a friend shared it with you. I don't know. We know that God's word is spreading and moving rapidly through this world, and he's accomplishing his purposes. It's amazing what's happening in Africa. It's amazing what's happening uh, in South America. Many coming to Christ all over the world. He is not uh, defeated by any means. His word is traveling rapidly. The gospel call comes to us. This proclaiming of the message, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul said that in Romans 1, 15 through 16. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, he said, in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. You... You want power to change your heart? You want power to know the forgiveness of God? It's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is here this morning, offered to you to turn to him and to believe. Regeneration, the gospel call, regeneration, the spirit of God moving, bringing alive the word of God to where you no longer view the Bible as some distant history book for somebody else, but you see that it is the message of God for you. And you're born again by the Spirit of God. Paul said in Romans 8, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Conversion. Faith and repentance. I must repent and I must believe. That's another picture of salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, and you shall be saved. Justification, which we've been talking about, by faith in Christ alone. Adoption, 
this beautiful doctrine of adoption in Romans 8. He says, you were, if you were led by the Spirit, you are the sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but, you've been, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out to him, Abba, Father, we've been adopted. Think of the pictures here. Not only are we declared legally innocent and righteous by the virtue of Christ, we've been received into his forever family as a child by faith in Christ. We are his children by faith in Christ. And then we come to sanctification, right conduct of life. That's where we are in Romans 6. I'll stop here for now, but you'll see in your insert this order of salvation leading all the way to glory. These are glimpses of salvation that God has given to us from his word. We're talking about sanctification these days. Being set apart for God's purposes. That's a great way to understand the Christian life. Being set apart. I once was in the mainstream and flow of this world, but now in Christ I've been set apart for His purposes. I'm to be holy as He is holy. I'm to surrender myself to Him. In fact, I'm to be a slave of God. So let's get into the text. Verses 19 through 22. Let me just note first that Slavery is a painful and powerful illustration, isn't it? Verse 19, Paul said, I'm speaking of in human terms because in verse 18, he speaks about becoming slaves of righteousness. If you're a Christian, you are a slave of righteousness, meaning that you are bowing to the allegiance of your master, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're pursuing his righteousness, obedience, And he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members to slave as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. It's a freedom you don't want. For us in this country, slavery is a painful part of our history. Even until this day, we see the ramifications of it. It's been fully repudiated by the vast majority of our country. The law of the land has been changed to abolish that dehumanizing institution and practice of chattel slavery. So slavery is a painful word in the context of our culture And maybe that may be a stumbling block when we read this in Romans 6. So when Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, he's just saying, I'm using this illustration that everybody knows about. Paul is referring to their humanists, referring to a subject everyone was familiar with in Rome in the first century. Slavery in ancient Rome played an important role in society and the economy. Besides manual labor, slaves performed a variety of services from highly skilled jobs to domestic um, roles. Um, Estimates of the percentage of the population of Italy alone were slaves ranged upward to one to two million in Italy alone. About 20 to 30 percent of the population for the entire Roman Empire. um, It's been estimated 10 to 15% of the total population are 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. This was something that was very common. 
And so when we think about what does it mean to be a slave of Jesus Christ, slaves to an unending impurity and lawlessness is the first picture that we receive. Prior to Christ, that's all we knew. Sin is a slavery. To be lost is to be enslaved and in bondage to your sin. For just as you once presented your members as slavery to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more meaning to leading to more lawlessness, Paul states in clear terms that believers are subject to slavery. I think it's very important that we not look horizontally and provide human evaluation here. This is as God sees things, and not as we see them. To be without Christ. According to Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul, is to be in bondage to your sin, the bondage of a sin nature. Thomas Schreiner, a reliable source, wrote, people do not submit to sin against their will, rather they freely and spontaneously choose to sin. In other words, unbelievers are slaves to sin and that they always desire to carry out the dictates of their master. This does not mean that those with addictions, alcohol, pornography, gambling, never wish to be freed. It means that the desire for these things is ultimately greater than the desire to be freed from them. Sinning is what they want to do. Only God, therefore, can release them from such uh, subjection, for new desires are necessary to escape the bondage of sin. And where do those new desires come from? They come from the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. I just, every believer should, should reflect upon what was it like when I was lost. And there ought to be a line of demarcation that I once did this, but now I, I no longer do that. Because God's got a call on my life. He mentions impurity here, and this always refers to sexual sin in Pauline writings. In Romans it, 1 verse 24, it speaks of impurity, dishonoring their bodies among themselves. God gave them up to these passions, the lust of their heart. It's mentioned in Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, these are deeds of the flesh. In Colossians 3, 5, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. So, impurity and lawlessness denotes sinful behavior in general, the next word, and they probably denote sin in a general way in life. That's what we pursue. That's what we wanted. We, 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 know, we knew no differently. So, to be a slave to unending impurity and lawlessness. And what can be so deceiving is there are certain standards of behavior in any culture where you, you know you're not supposed to do it. And so, I think that the lost unbelieving heart finds ways to camouflage the bondage that they're in. And sometimes that's not camouflaged very well. It's a spiritual reality. Notice secondly, slaves to righteousness. That's what God's called us to be. Slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification, meaning being conformed into the image of Christ. 
Think of the, uh, the Exodus for a moment, that great deliverance where God brought his people out of Egypt. And he said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Yahweh made clear his purpose for Israel's deliverance. Uh, let my people go that they may go and serve me. I'm delivering them out of your bondage that they may serve me. God delivers men and women from enslavement to sin for the sole purpose of becoming enslaved to him and to his righteousness. And there are four evidences of this change. Changed attitudes and change of desire and growing hatred towards sin. And breaking off old influences and setting a new direction. In his comprehensive commentary, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote uh, in his uh, commentary on Romans, as you go on living this righteous life and practicing it with all your might and energy. So think of your Christian life like that. To be a slave of God, a slave to righteousness, I need to be practicing it with all my energy. I hear the objection, oh, that's way too serious, man. That's just too serious. But it's blood earnest as I read it in the scripture that this is a call for all of us. Lloyd-Jones continues, you will find that the process that went on before in which you went on from bad to worse and became viler and viler is entirely reversed. You will become cleaner and cleaner, purer and purer, holier and holier, and more and more conformed into the image of the Son of God. But that won't be the pursuit if you don't desire it. No one stands still morally or spiritually. Just as unbelievers progress from sinfulness to greater sinfulness, a believer who is not growing in righteousness, though never falling back altogether out of righteousness, will slip further and further back into sin. This is a challenge for us today. So let us consider it done, that we have died in Christ, that God has a call on our life, and though we deal with sin cravings, all of us do, Sin's cravings can reign in our bodies, but we must not let it. Our struggle with sin occurs in and through our bodies, but we yield them over to God as servants and slaves of righteousness. And it's the power of God that enables us not to sin. And that's one of the truths that comes out of Romans 6. In Jesus Christ, we actually come to the place where we have the power not to sin. And that power comes from him. But what I see in all of this is coming back to the emphasis again and again. Am I treasuring Christ as I should? Do I love him with all of my heart? Notice with me secondly, assessing the fruit of our lives. Look at verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? So he's saying the fruit of of an unredeemed life, the fruit of living for your flesh and for yourself, um, it produces what? Well, he says here, shame. Do you remember when Adam and Eve took of the fruit? Where did God find them in the cool of the day? Hiding in the bushes, really? (laughs) As if the omnipotent, omniscient one didn't know where they were. He did ask a question that I think is so powerful today. Where are you? Well, he knew perfectly well where they were. 
He wanted them to know where they were. Where are you? So when we look at the fruit of our, what's being produced in our life? Am I growing as a Christian? Is this even a question I'm asking? I pray so. Paul contends that grace involves a change of masters. And so what fruit should be coming out of our life? What fruit should be coming out of our life? Let me just mention a few. One is growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Growing in doctrine. Understanding your salvation. Understanding the word of God. Giving a defense of the hope that is within you. Growing in confidence in the truths of God's word. Doctrinal foundations that will serve you well. And this was the invitation of Jesus in Matthew 7. To build your life on the rock of who I am. So when the floods and the winds and the rains come, you'll remain standing. Here's another fruit. How about the fruit of the Spirit? It's a sad thing to see Christians who are rude, ugly, nasty. May that never be named among us. When we go into public, may we be really alert to the fact that we're representing our Savior in that arena. And may the fruit of the Spirit come forth from our life, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. May that be the fruit of our life. And when it's not, may we confess it and ask God for help in order to change. All of us have things that we will work on the rest of our lives. What about the fruit of worship and praise? Life is to be lived out as worship. What about the worship of fruit and praise? Like mentioned in Hebrews 13, 15, therefore let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips. The fruit of worship and praise. What about the fruit of giving to others? giving them the gospel, giving them to them in times of need. In Philippians 4, Paul referenced the Philippians' gift to them, and he said, I seek for the fruit that abounds to your account. This was well-pleasing in the sight of God. What about the fruit of living a holy and pure life? As Paul said to the Colossians, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. That one of the purposes of our gathering is to stimulate one another to go and serve Christ in the arena in which you live. How about converts to Christ? Those you've shared the gospel with, who've come to saving faith in Christ. That is a beautiful fruit that comes forth from a believer's life. All of these are important. Notice with me thirdly, and we'll... We'll come to a conclusion here. God, glorious benefits of obedient slavery. That's how he ends this. Glorious benefits of obedient slavery. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. Look at this, friends. What does it mean to be a slave of God? Notice how he lays it out for us. We're set free from sin. 
While we still have a sin nature that we battle, we've been set free from the bondage of sin and death. It is no longer held against us because of Christ. In Christ, we now possess the power not to sin. Then he mentions slaves of God. This is difficult to accept, as we've already noted. No human is free to do everything he or she may want to do. Only one who is totally free, and that's God himself. But all others are limited by or enslaved by someone or something. And for us, it's sin apart from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Who are you serving? Whose slave are you? I pray that you would have great joy in saying... I'm wanting to be more and more surrendered to Jesus Christ and for him to be the master of my life. I would remind you again of David Livingstone who said he's the greatest master I've ever known. If there is anyone greater, I do not know him. Jesus Christ is the only master supremely worth serving. May it be true of your life and in mine. This fruit of righteousness is what he mentions next. Setting, set free from sin, slaves of God, fruit of righteousness, a life pleasing to God is a life that by example, by word, by deed, demonstrates the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This isn't self-righteousness. This is the righteousness we know by faith in him being worked out and lived out in our life in a practical way. And these works are a part of true saving faith. Did you know that works are part of the salvation picture in the Bible. That it's part of a, a true biblical assurance. There is an assurance of salvation for the people of God that is precious. And it doesn't come by, by visiting the pastor and oh, he said I was saved and I'm good to go. <laughs> I never say that to anybody. But there is an assurance found in the scriptures that is precious and I want you to see it. Would you look with me at one side reference here again to if, if Hebrews chapter, um, chapter 12. Notice how the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 14, how he mentions this part of our salvation, which is a lifelong journey, which is our sanctification. How he references this in Hebrews 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. So he's talking about conflicts and relationships. We're to strive for peace with everyone, Paul said in Romans. As much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. And then the writer of Hebrews says here, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What that does is it clips the poisonous vine of a false gospel which says, pray a prayer, walk an aisle, do the baptism thing, and then you really don't have to worry about how you live from there on out. And the writer of Hebrews says, oh no, that's, that's not what it means at all. He talks here about a striving for peace and for the holy, a striving for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I'm often thinking in these terms, you know, that doesn't mean a little, a smaller piece of the pie. That means no pie. If I'm not interested in obeying Christ, I don't have a biblical grounds for the assurance of my salvation. I'm not adding any works to, to, to the gospel. 
I'm looking at the motivation of what it should produce within us. A hunger to know him, the fruit of righteousness. He goes on in 15, see to it that no one falls short to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Without grace, bitterness is an ever-present danger. And then finally he mentions eternal life. Eternal life. And Jesus defined eternal life this way. This is eternal life. That you may know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. John 17, 3. This is eternal life that you know, may know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. The fact that our God is eternal is challenging to our thoughts because everything we know in this life has a beginning and an end. He has no beginning and no end and is another powerful example of how unlike him we are. The sheer reality of never-endingness. Now, when we think about eternal life, that's a gift. That's Romans 6.23 and that's next week. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a gift. And it's a present possession. By believing in the Lord, eternal life is something you possess now. It doesn't begin when you die. It doesn't begin at your funeral. It begins now in real time when you receive the gift of salvation by faith in Christ alone. You become a possessor of eternal life. That includes abundance. I have come that you might have life, Jesus said, and to have it to the full. Life where he has promised to be with you and in you and to guide you into his very presence. And then on that day when we graduate from this world of tears and sorrow to enter into his presence forevermore, it goes on and on and on and on, eternal life with the eternal God who's always been. Years ago, we've heard the illustrations of how long is eternity? Years ago, I heard it expressed this way. Suppose a little bird flies to the beach on the Atlantic side and picks up a grain of sand and flies to the plains of Kansas and deposits the grain and flies back. And every thousand years, he makes the trip. Picks up a grain of sand, brings it, puts it down. Another thousand years later, picks up another grain of sand, and so be it. When the pile of sand is as high as Mount Everest, eternity will have begun. It's serious. I heard one preacher express it this way. I never have a Sunday where I think it's Sunday light. Because eternity's in the balance. We don't know what a day will bring forth. Our lives are tissue paper thin. And the call is to pursue Him now. To surrender to Him now. To live for Him now. Sometimes our sanctification seems so incredibly slow and treacherous. I, I just think of, you know, the delays. I thought of this, uh, this boy who asked his father what the highest number he had ever counted to was. Father thought, well, that's an interesting question. He, he didn't know. 
but returned the question and asked his son, what's the highest number you ever counted to, son? He said, 5,372. Oh, said the father, why did you stop there? Well, church was over. (laughs) I understand little boys like that. I do. But I also understand the weight of what it means to know God and His salvation. And to not know Him is to perish. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, would you deliver us from the mentality of Sunday light? Yes, there's place in the gathering of your church for laughter, abundant, joyful laughter. Yes, there is times of recounting and rejoicing and knowing the peace of of God. But there's an intensity to the Christian life, Lord, and I pray that we would own it. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, admonishing them to shine as bright lights in this wicked and perverse generation. I pray that we would do that not with a sense of superiority of self-righteousness or condemnation or holier than thou, but no, a humble pursuit of the living God. And Lord, I pray in these closing moments of this service that you would move in our hearts, that this study in Romans 6 would make a huge difference in us and that we would take serious what it means to live day by day as slaves of God, obedient to you, caring what you think above all. I pray that you would move in us as a church to be ready this month for a time of renewal and refreshing with our friends from Life Action. I pray for those, Lord, right now in the close of the service who you've you've been dealing in their hearts and they know that they need salvation and need to follow you in baptism. Lord, that you would move uh, in this time and we would step forward in faith and in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing and may the Spirit of God have his way with us in these closing moments.